Well, I'm not going to introduce myself at all. I'm just going to go right into the Bible, if you don't mind, because that's kind of more interesting than me. So, um, you're going to get to know, well, this is one thing I will start about me. Um, I like the Old Testament, so we're going to, I'm going to speak about the Old Testament. And specifically, you know what I liked? When I became a Christian at the university, um, I didn't like how most of the Christians I knew would uh, duck questions about hard scriptures. You know, oh, I know it says that in the Old Testament, but Jesus, you know, um, uh, and I, that's partially true. There's always the, but Jesus, that's a good thing. But there's nothing, nothing in the breathed word of God that we should be shying away from, especially when it gets hard. So I'm going to talk today about Samson, Judges. If, and if you know anything about the book of Judges, um, scholars um, point out, it's very obvious, it starts relatively high, and it ends horribly. It gets worse. The judges get worse. Israel gets worse. The, they often, oh, wow, look at that. That's impressive. Um, so, uh, in fact, the scholars refer to judges as a downward spiral, or sometimes literally they call it, pardon me, a flushing toilet. Because Israel goes and gets worse and worse and worse. To the point where at the end, they basically annihilate one of the tribes, if you know anything about it. Um, and in Sunday schools, uh, usually, I'm generalizing, we will, if we talk about that at all, we, we do the Veggie Tales. We do Veggie Tales judges. So Gideon, in fact, in the Veggie Tales, Gideon's, if I, sorry if I'm slandering it, they refer to Gideon as the most faithful warrior in God's his, in history of, the, of Israel. That's nonsense, okay? I'll, one day we'll do that. I spent a lot of time studying judges, so forgive me if I'm tearing down Gideon for you. Um, but he's just a guy, and not a really great one even. But today, Samson specifically, we're going to talk about. So I'm going to read Judges 15, verses 9 to 20. Read along with me if you can. The Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lehi. The people of Judah asked, Why have you come to fight us? We have come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? He answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. They said to him, We've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Samson said, Swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. Agreed, they answered. We'll only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and led him up from the rock. <clears throat> and he approached Lehi, or sorry, as he approached Lehi, the Philistines came toward him, shouting. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. The ropes of his arms became like charred flax, and the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding the fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Then Samson said, With a donkey's jawbone I have made donkeys of them, and with a donkey's jawbone I have killed a thousand men. When he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone, and the place was called Ramath-Lehi. Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, You have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi, and, the wa and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned, and he revived. So the spring was called Enhakor, and it's, it is still there in Lehi. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Now, in August of 19, 1997, you may, you may not know the date, August 31st, but you probably know where you were. Princess Diana died, okay? And about five days later, on the 5th of September, Mother Teresa died. Now, this was a, an interesting problem for the media, 
See, because the media um, spent all their time talking about Princess Diana and very little time talking about Mother Teresa. And uh, the media then began to realize, hey, why are we spending all this time on Diana? And this other woman of importance died as well. Um, and it was interesting to see, and when you, you can go back and read, the way culture kind of approached the, 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 the death of these two very influential women in the world. And um, the critics, you know, the more cynical types, would say things like, well, we, we focus on Diana because we're shallow. We're a shallow people. We don't care about deep, real heroes. We, we like our heroes with little dirt on them. And Diana was that. Um, others would say, well, it's not so much that, it's also that I can't relate to Mother Teresa. I can relate to Diana, because she was um, passionate, flawed, very self-aware, very uh, self-conscious. Uh, um, and they said, you know, I can relate to her, but Mother Teresa, she doesn't care how she looks. She just wants to, she gives and gives. I can't relate to that kind of a person, so I'll just watch the Princess Die show. Thank you. Now, I won't make any more comments about what that tells us, but what this, at least is, this is something of what it would tell us. What was happening in 97 was not, didn't happen in a, in a vacuum. It was the result of something that had changed in the culture. And it's really the way we see heroes. That has changed radically in the last hundred years. So if you were to go back to, um, well, some of you maybe, even when you were young, um, in fact, I still listen to old-time radio shows. You know those old shows on the, from the 40s? Yeah, I love them. First of all, Johnny Dollar is like my favorite. I answered the phone, Johnny Dollar. Anyway, um, side note. But um, in those old shows, the heroes that we kind of idolized, the ones we put up on pedestals, were people like Superman, the Lone Ranger. Now, the nice thing about those guys um, were that they never struggled. You see, Superman in those shows, he would find out, hey, Superman, there's, um, uh, there's a kitten in a tree. Superman never struggled morally. I'll get the tree. I'll take the cat out of the tree, no problem. You know, there's a, a damsel in distress. I'll save her. See, there's never a moral challenge to, to Superman. He always knew right, and he did it. Lone Ranger, very similar. But somewhere along the line, we went from Superman to something called, have you, I mean, if, if you're a comic book nerd, you will know somebody, a group called The Watchmen. Now, The Watchmen was a book written in the, in the 80s, and I read it. It's a graphic novel, graphic meaning pictures, not graphic, like, oh my gosh, um, just, just, just make sure, just make, that's why you know your pastor is reading normal things. Um, anyway, so it's a big fat comic book um, called The Watchmen, and the reason I read it was because, not, I don't even like comics really, but I saw it listed as one of the best books ever written on a few lists, and I thought, really, a comic book? So I read it. Now, it's incredible. It's a little harsh, so if you don't have a strong stomach, maybe don't read it, but it's, um, what The Watchmen were was this. They were flawed heroes. In fact, most of them didn't even have superpowers. They're just people who want to fight. And, and, and they would say um, they want to effect justice in the world. But their brand of justice wasn't Superman's. It was very flawed. It was a flawed idea. So these heroes struggled with anger. They struggled with alcoholism. They struggled with being heroes. They thought, what am I doing? Why am I wasting my time? No one cares. I can't stop evil. So. And this is not just in The Watchmen, this is Batman. Look at, if you, I mean, how many of you can take your kids now, if you have them or grandkids, to a superhero movie? They're pretty dark now. And that's because somewhere along the way, we went from hero elevation to hero deconstruction. We are suspicious of heroes. When you find someone, have you ever noticed? It's, I mean, up here, you may hear this sermon, you may hear Pastor Chris speaking, and you'll think, yeah, good sermon. 
I wonder what he's like at home. I wonder if he's really as wonderful as he says. Um, you know, and we want to do that. We want to deconstruct our heroes now. We, don't, we no longer want them up there. We like to tear them down a little. We don't like to see anyone who makes us feel in, insignificant or makes us feel bad about ourselves. And Carol Gilligan, she's a writer for the um, New York Times, during this Princess Die scenario, wrote an, an incredible article trying to figure out why is it that we think this. And she's not a Christian, and uh, you'll know in a minute why. So she says this about the whole situation. She says, you know, we were relieved as a people to know Princess Diana because she was flawed like us. In fact, and then she makes an incredible biblical allusion, and she says, in fact, like Eve, Princess Diana knew good and evil, but unlike Eve, she wasn't ashamed. Now, right away, there's a, I have a lot of problems with that comment. But do you see what, what, what she's saying about the culture? She's saying, it's one thing to be a hero, but I don't want my heroes that are so high up that they crush me with the expectations they put on me. I don't want Mother Teresa, because every time I look at her, I'm reminded of how selfish I can be of how not great I am. And listen, I'm not saying Mother Teresa was a saint. Well, I guess they've canonized her. So maybe she is a saint. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I guess that's true. Um, but the point is, those superhuman heroes, we love them. It's, it's a strange relationship we have with heroes. You see, we want them because they make us feel like we can do better. We can go beyond ourselves. But we also want to just knock them down a peg. So you'll say something like, Mother Teresa, what an example. I heard she was really cruel at times, turning people away, and sometimes she didn't use the money very well. Have you seen those articles lately coming out about her when they canonized her? CNN was talking about, yeah, wonderful woman. Not as pretty, not as wonderful a past as you'd think, because we don't like it. We don't like to look at something and be struck by how insignificant, how, how bad it makes us feel. I'll give you an example. I didn't use it in the first service, but if you've read the Narnia books, well, in one of the, the first Narnia book, The Magician's Nephew, it talks about, everybody knows who Narnia and everything, right? You're Christians, come on. It's like the Bible right next to Narnia. Um, but in the first book, what happens is uh, C.S. Lewis goes through how Narnia, this fantasy world, was created. Um, and in this creation scene, there's a bunch of humans kind of standing back watching as the world is being created. And Aslan, the great, the Jesus figure in the book, is literally singing creation into, into being. He's singing and things are being formed. Trees are coming up, mountains, animals, all these things. Now, in the midst of that, you have a crowd. You have three kids or so and a couple of older people. The children see this terrifying giant lion and they say, I'm terrified, but I'm drawn to it. And they walk towards him. The other two who are a bit, you know, not such great characters, one of them turns out to be the evil queen in, in Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, sees it, the exact same scene, but they run from it and say, I'm, I'm not going near that lion, he'll eat me. This isn't interesting that we see the, so they see the exact same thing, but very different responses to it. And the same way, this is what we're seeing about um, with heroes. We look at them and sometimes we're drawn to them, other times we're repel repelled by them because they make us feel so insignificant. Okay, so that is the quick intro. Okay, I was, I was early last service, don't worry. Um, and um, so now we're gonna turn to, to Samson. I say all of this to say, we have to approach this text, Samson, and in fact, all the judges, everyone in the scripture, in such a way as to not idolize them and not to villainize them, because for two reasons. One, Samson is not the hero of the story, not. Two, he's not the villain of the story. He's a jerk, okay? But, but he's, a, he's a human being. He's flawed. 
And we have to approach the text in those two ways. So we're looking at three things now in this text. He's not a hero. He's not an anti-hero. But he's pointing to something. He's pointing to a hero. Okay? All right. No one's walked up and left, so that's good. First one, he is not a hero. So let's think about the character of a hero. What is a, what is a hero? Let's look at Samson's character, Samson's character and determine... You, you, let's just see if he, if he has, if, he, if you have a checklist of what is a hero, you know, good looking, all these things. Is he a hero um, in the classical sense? Well, he's strong. That's a no-brainer. Any child in this church will be able to tell me that. Samson is strong. Kills 3,000 men. That's a given. But he's also incredibly weak morally and spiritually. And, you know, in all these stories about heroes that you'll ever read, any book, every fairy tale, the hero always rises above their enemy. They always have that little bit extra. If it's in a fight, if it's morally, if it's anything, the hero always rises above. In fact, if he didn't or she didn't, they're not a hero. Samson, however, remember how they get to the situation that you just read? So Samson goes to a wedding with a woman. Uh, for, and uh, he's at a wedding with his in-laws and his, the friends of, the, of his new wife. We didn't read that this morning, but this is how we get to this section we read. And he, he proposes a riddle. Do you remember this? Now, this is a pretty jerk move to do, just for the record. He's at a wedding, and he says to all of his in-laws, I have a riddle for you, and if you don't get it right, you give me 30 new suits of clothes. And if I don't get it, if you get it right, I'll give you 30 new suits of clothes. So maybe not the best way to start off with your in-laws, but okay. So there's the the challenge. Now they figure out the story by conniving, and they kind of cheat to get the answer. Samson gets angry, and he burns their fields. Remember the foxes with the the fire on the tails? he burns their fields, and then they come back, and uh, they end up burning his, his wife and her father. So Samson then goes back. So they're going back and forth. Now, in the story we just read, remember the Philistines show up to Judah, and the Judah, Judahites say, why are you here? And the Philistines say, we're doing to him what he did to us. Samson's then asked, what are you doing? And what does he say? I'm doing to them what they did to me. Now, my children behave like that. I'm just doing what they do. You see, Samson never rises above his enemies. He stays right on their level. He never shows any moral or spiritual superiority. So that's, a, that's uh, the first thing we have to look at. Is he, is he a real hero? Second one, he's brutal. Aside from just killing, why does the text show us that he's actually making jokes in the middle of it? So he kills these thousand with the jawbone of a donkey, and then he doesn't just rest. He makes a joke. And I read from the NIV, but he says, with a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys out of them. Now, your translation may say, I have made heaps, whatever. The word for donkey and the word for heaps is the exact same word in the Hebrew, hamor. So what he is basically doing is he's making a, he's kind of being funny. Is that really something Superman would do? Is that something a classic hero does, that he jokes in the midst of murder? And No, not really. So, again, we're on edge a little bit with Samson, Okay. Third one, fourth, depending on how you're looking at it, he's very self-absorbed. Samson likes a mirror. And this is how we can see it very clearly in what we just read. So Samson kills these thousand men with, his, with a jawbone. He is then so tired, he's spent. He's laying on the ground, he says he's about to die, and he cries out to God, God, have you delivered, these, delivered me from their hands just to kill me here of thirst? So God responds graciously and opens up the hollow spot in Lehi, and water comes up, and Samson is revived. Samson then does what is, unless your translation, I may have a little star beside the word, but um, unless you're paying attention, you may miss it. 
he says, thank you so much, and he names the place En-Hakor. If you look at the bottom of your Bibles, if there's a little star there, what does it say? It says, he names it, the place of the one who calls. He doesn't say the place of the one who saves. Okay? Imagine if I'm in a, fire, a house that's burning, and I call 911, and they put out the flames, they save me and my family, and I put up a plaque that says, the house of the one who called 911. Now, who am I commemorating? I didn't do anything. I called for help, and I can't be drawing attention to myself. It shows an incredible self-absorption of Samson, which you'd see throughout the whole story if you read the whole thing. I didn't want to read three chapters with you today. but um, So is this a classic hero? Well, he's not. He's not a classic hero. And yet, you really don't want him to be. Because heroes will crush you with their expectations. You see, part of the problem with our culture, and not even our culture, it's our human condition of being taken, uh, of being fallen creatures, is we always want to idolize something. This is why Martin Luther called us idol factories, because we're always trying to make something our savior. Some of you may do it with celebrities. Some of you may do it with your children. Don't worship your children. They will leave you and let you down, and you'll let them down if you haven't already, just for the record. Um, and, uh, and wives, uh, we watch, Sarah and I were watching something on Netflix and one of these shows is about, it's, you know, it's kind of funny, but the whole theme running through it is this one character, the woman character, trying to find a husband, basically. As in a nutshell, that's what the, the sum of all these are. Because she thinks, well, if I just had this, my life would be good. You see, the problem is this, if I make Sarah, that's my wife, by the way, um, <laughs> good thing, if I make Sarah that object in my life, and I say, you know, if I just had her, things would be better. Two problems are going to happen. One, I'm going to be sorely disappointed, no offense, because she, <laughs> I should have turned around. If she makes me the object, she'll be disappointed because I will crush her expectations. I will never be as caring as she wants me to be. I'll never be as thoughtful. I'll never be as good a father as we both know I could be. All of these things. And yet, um, she does it anyway. And not only that, she'll crush me with the expectations. I'll be the husband who feels she wants me to be Superman, and I can't be. I'm just, I'm handsome only. <laughs> Sorry, see, I'm trying to keep it a little light. It is the book of Judges. Um, but you see, so we actually don't want Samson to be the, the Sunday school hero we can make him out to be sometimes. So he's not a hero. So point two then is, is he the anti-hero? Is he just a plain old jerk? Okay, it's, is it possible? Well, it's hard to say that, too, because if you know anything about the history of Israel, this is a crucial time. So you read it, and we'll read through, the, through Judges, and you won't, it won't say, all right, everybody, now pay attention, because this is a very important time in the history of Israel. It won't tell you that, but it is. Every scholar will tell you, and this is why. Um, in, in any part of Judges, when it's Ehud, when, if you don't know Ehud, he does the left-handed guy. Remember that? Boys would love this. I love this as a young man. He sticks the knife in the guy's belly and the fat closes over the belly. Remember that story in Judges? No? Am I the only sadistic one? Okay. So Ehud does this. Um, Ehud does that. Gideon calls all Israel together. You see, judges were sent. Judges is the, the Hebrew word used as savior, just so you know. Judges are saviors that God sends. This is how Israel's life goes. They know God. They sin. They get, because of their sin, they are led into all kinds of messes. They're usually under an oppressor. They cry out for God, God sends a savior. And then it happens all over again. Okay, that's what the story of Judges is, over and over. Now, when Ehud kills the Moabite king, Eglon, and he calls all Israel to fight and says, let's throw off the shackles of the Moabites, they follow. 
When Gideon does it, they follow. In fact, everybody does. But now we have Samson who shows up. And he is fighting. And does, does Israel come to help him? No. They come to throw him in. They come to give him to the Philistines. So what we're seeing in the history of Israel is a very, this is why it's so important. Why is it that Israel, at this point in history, doesn't want to be free from their oppressors? It's important because you and I find ourselves very much in this situation now because Philistines were, despite what you read about Goliath, they were not brutal, a brutal overseer. They were not brutal at all. They married with the Israelites. They welcomed them into commerce. They made it so easy for Israel that this is why the Jews come and say, what have you done to us? We got a good thing here, Samson. And you're ruining it by your craziness. And this is why that is a crucial time Israel was at a point where they could just as easily have been absorbed into the Philistines, and then what would have happened to God's plan to save us? What happens to the plan if Israel disappears? So, sensing that, what do you do to rouse someone who is a sleepwalker? My dad once threw a cup of water in my face. That's not pleasant, but, um, you know, it's not easy to wake somebody who's in that kind of a stupor, who's slowly drifting off. Um, so, would... Ehud work in that situation? Is that kind of the judge that God should send? Well, Ehud, brave, but he's conniving. If you know the story, he's a trickster, right? He's very, uh, very subtle. This doesn't require subtleness, this job. In fact, think of Gideon. We all love Gideon. Well, listen, Gideon is like my uh, high school boyfriend or girlfriend, right? They, uh, he always needs assurance. God, again, he, he lays so many fleeces down always asking for God's, are you sure, God? Are you sure you'll do this? Are you sure? Is that the kind of judge that God needed here? No, because when you need to demolish something, you don't use a scalpel, you use a sledgehammer. And Israel couldn't just be shook, they needed to be smacked awake. And Gideon would never have put up with being bound by his own people and thrown into to the enemy. Ehud wouldn't have done it. But what God needed was a sledgehammer, something that would knock through a wall. I uh, cut wood. I, in my old house, I had to chop wood a lot. And um, sometimes you get a knotted piece of wood. Anybody here chopped wood? Um, cho you, you know, it doesn't matter how subtle you are with that axe. A knotted piece of wood does not want to break. The only way to break it is either to use a chainsaw, I suppose. Even that's hard. Or you have to beat that thing down. Just continually hammer and hammer it. Um, now, if that is what's needed here, Israel is so close to just becoming part of Phil, uh, Philistia, Phil, uh, um, then will they simply be roused by Gideon or Ehud? Or do they need a guy who is so arrogant, who is so self-assured that when his own people come and say, hey, we're going to throw you in jail, he doesn't feel bad, like, oh, they don't appreciate me. What does Samson say? Fine, do it. I'm still going to kill him. Now, I'm not, I'm, I'm not glorifying him. He's not, a, he's not a hero, but he is just the instrument that God needed at that moment to rouse Israel from their Philistine stupor. Nothing else would have done. So God sends this guy who you're, we all read and we think, gosh, how could Hebrews 11 call this guy a hero? He's horrible. But that is why. And the point of this, so we've now established he's not a hero, but he's also not an anti-hero because, you know, here, what did we say at the start? A hero does what? Saves. In fact, if Superman never helped anybody, we wouldn't call him a superhero. He'd be like mediocre hero or something. I don't know what we'd call him if he doesn't save. But Samson, 
accomplishes what he was called to. Look at uh, Judges 13.5. We can put it up there if you'd like. This is the calling of Samson. You will become pregnant. This is to his wife, Manoah. Um, you will become pregnant and have a son whose head, or sorry, Manoah's wife, um, is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. Here it comes. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now, um, if you look at the translations, you probably have King James and ESV. It'll be a little bit clearer where it says he will begin to deliver Israel. You see, Gideon was called to take Israel and save them. Ehud, to save them. Samson is not. His job is to simply punch a hole in the dam, get it started. I need a sledgehammer. Somebody else will do the rest of the work. Your job, knock a hole in that wall. And that is an important thing to notice. So he, is he a hero? No. Is he an anti-hero? No, he has a modicum of faith, doesn't he? He does what God called him to do. So he's kind of this human, okay? And I say that intentionally, facetiously. He's one of us. He's not a hero. Don't make him sound like it when you tell your kids or grandkids about it. He's not. But he's also not an anti-hero. He's like us, a normal guy who God uses to do incredible things, okay? So if that's the case, we know he's not a hero. He's not Princess Di. He's not Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa, then what is he doing? Well, he's pointing to a hero. Now, this is the key part. If you ever hear me speak and I don't point every scripture to Christ, then you can slap me in the face. Because everywhere, heroes are pointing you towards the fact, two facts. One, you need a hero, okay? Remember that song in the 80s, I need a hero? Anyway, showing my age. Um, So we need a hero. The second point is, there is a hero. And if you make Samson your hero, or your wife, or your job, or your pastor, or whatever it is, you're going to be let down. So, who does he point to? First, okay, let's talk about the hair, because I know I said earlier in the other service, if I left without talking about the hair, you'd be like, what a horrible sermon, you didn't even mention the hair. Um, So let's talk about the hair. The Nazarite Nazarite vow. A Nazarite had three basic laws, or rules, they were supposed to live by. One, don't drink. Two, don't touch anything that's unclean, i.e. dead. And three, don't cut your hair. I won't go into why those were there, but we could if if we had more time. So Samson, did he drink? Oh yes, he loved it. He drank a lot. And if you read the story, you'll see he had no problem getting drunk, okay, and behaving as Samson did. So he breaks that one rule. The second one is don't touch anything dead. Not only does he do it often, killing people, of course, But look at this story. Did you notice? You ever wonder, remember, if Scripture is God-breathed, every word is important for you to pay attention to. And in 15, verse 15, so 15, 15, it says, finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it. Now, why does it say a fresh jawbone? Because the author is trying to show you, look at him again, breaking the rules. That's a new carcass of a dead donkey, and he's he's (laughs) taking that thing out. Everywhere, the writer of Judges is trying to show us how imperfect these guys are. So he's broken those two rules. The last one we have is his hair, his flowing hair. Now, you know the story. It's the Delilah and Samson story. She nags him to find out the source of his strength. Eventually, he he lets on to the hair. Uh, Most scholars will say he didn't even know it was his hair. He just assumed. He's just kind of talking. Um, And he's nagged, so he just keeps saying everything, and he's offering different ones, regardless of that. The point is, he says it's the hair. They cut his hair, and this incredible thing's happening. So you go 16, verse 5. I could, or I could paraphrase it. 
Okay, so let's paraphrase just in case it doesn't go up. So uh, 16 verse 5, remember the story. He's told Delilah a bunch of uh, lies, basically, and the Philistines come to drag him away, but he always breaks the bonds and kills them, right? Finally, this happens. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, see if you can lure him into a, uh, showing you a secret. Uh, oh, that's not the one. Sorry. I should have looked at my notes. 1620. Beg your pardon. The notes are there. I should just use them, right? Um, so 1620, finally the Philistines fall upon him to drag him away. And uh, this is what we find. She, she calls, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Now, this is those hard scriptures I was talking about. If you are an honest Christian and you read this, you should have a problem with that last line. Because what it is saying is, Samson had three strikes and God has left him because he's out-sinned God's grace. You shouldn't just walk past it. You should sit and listen to why God, why is that in there? Because aren't we told, and rightly told, by the way, I'm not contradicting the gospel here, that you are saved by grace and you can't out-sin God's love? If that's the case, then how do you explain this? Now, as a Christian, you need to wrestle with those hard things. Please, I'm urging you to. This is why. Because a contradiction starts to happen, it seems like. So God leaves him, but then later on, if you know the story, Samson is uh, led to the the temple of Dagon, where he is basically on parade uh, for the Philistines, and they're mocking him. His eyes are gouged out very poetically, since he was a man who lived by the passion of his eyes. He says to his parents, give me that Timnite woman. She looks good in my eyes. That's Samson. Lives by his belly, lives by his eyes. Everything I like, give. And he has them gouged out. Then he is standing there at the temple of Dagon, leaning on the pillars, and he prays one last time, God, just give me strength to do what you've asked me to do, which is to kill as many of these guys as I can, start this war. I won't get into that part. We can talk about that side after. But God then answers the prayer. So did God leave him or did God not leave him? Okay, well, let's talk about it. This is what happens. God left Samson. He withdrew from Samson just enough for Samson to realize he needed God. See, God doesn't owe you his ever abiding in this way, that I will be there and everything will go from mountaintop to mountaintop. God is trying to make you and I something. So he will at times pull away, never, with, never abandon, but he'll remove himself a little to let you get into a valley because he needs Samson, the mighty one, to become weak so that in his weakness, God can use him to accomplish exactly what he called him to do. So does, Sam, does God leave him? Yes. Does God stay with him? Yes. That's what God does. He never abandons Samson, but he does pull away enough to make Samson the tool that he needs him to be. Is that making sense? So it happens to all of us. Now, if this is the case, um, how does he point to, to something else? Think about the story. Let's put it in bullet points. First, he comes to a people, Samson, as a savior, um, a yashar, a savior, and he comes to a people that don't want to be saved. Okay? That's point one. Second point, the savior is then bound by his own people and given over to his enemies. Is this starting to sound familiar to you? It should, and if it hasn't, maybe you're new. That's okay, too. Um, The third one, at his very weakest, he is actually his strongest. And remember, the text makes it clear that it actually says, and here, Samson killed more than he ever did in his life. 
because by his weakness, God made him stronger. And Jesus, of course, on the cross, when he can't even wriggle, as an old New Testament prophet of mine used to say, couldn't even wriggle on the cross, is at his mightiest for us. So if all of that is pointing towards that, um, is, this is the point of these Old Testament stories, guys, is to show you you need a hero, but these guys aren't them. It's pointing you to a greater one. And this is where the Samson differs from, for, uh, for, uh, Christ differs from Samson. Samson is completely disobedient. Christ comes and is fully obedient. Samson um, does, is driven by vengeance, as you can see in these stories. Christ is driven by love. Samson and all the judges, in fact, and David included, who's not a judge but uh, a king, they all, deliver, they all deliver Israel by heaping up dead bodies. All of them. That's what, that's what war is. You win a war, you kill people, and if you kill more than they did, hurrah, you win. Christ comes and he completely gains victory by having his own life given up, not anybody else's. He kills nobody. So when we look at Samson, you ought to look at him and say, he's not a, he's not a hero, but he is pointing to one. And I'll close with this last just few minutes. It's not in the notes, but I threw it on last service, so I'll make you sit through the same thing. Uh, many moons ago, I was studying Latin American history, um, specifically in the Mexican Revolution and Mexico, and um, I, I stumbled upon a, a myth the, of the Aztecs. So the Aztecs were the, the forerunners of the, of the Mexicans, the indigenous people to that area. You all know about Az the Aztecs. And they were, um, had an incredible civilization, but they had a myth. They had this, this story about a god. And this god was named Quetzalcoatl. You won't have to spell it. Don't worry. And this god, this is how the story went. Hey, things used to be good. But now they're not so good. We're struggling as a civilization. But one day, Quetzalcoatl will return. He went away over the east, over the sea to the east. That's interesting. Um, but he'll come back. And when he comes back, I'm going to know it's him because he'll have four distinctives. He's going to be shining like the sun. He is going to have a beard, which, just so you know, that's weird, right? Indigenous people don't grow beards. So that's unique. It's not just, well, big deal, a beard. Every 25-year-old has a beard today. They're all hipsters, right? Um, but, sorry if there's any hipsters here. I would grow one, but I wouldn't look right. Um, so he'll, have, he'll be shining like the sun, he'll have a beard, he'll be able to point at me and give me life and death, and he'll be wounded. That's pretty interesting coincidence for a culture that never met a white man, never heard the gospel. Um, and then, is it any, so unfortunately, it's a bit tragic, because then the Aztecs uh, find a guy named Hernan Cortez comes from Spain, for all from Cuba, actually, and he um, leads 400 Spaniards that eventually wipe out the million Aztecs. And he does it because when he comes off the boat, the Aztecs see him and say, hey, he's wearing armor that's shining like the sun. They've never seen armor. He's got a musket, and if he points at me, he can give me life and death. He's got a beard because he's Spanish, and he's wounded because, call it a coincidence, call it what you want as Christians, he fell off a horse the day before in Cuba and is limping. Now, they worship him as God for a short time. Of course, they find out he's not, but by then it's too late. War and smallpox do the, do the job of wiping them out. Now, why would I be talking on Sunday about such a miserable story? This is why. As I read those stories, I look around every culture on the planet that I know of anyway. has a story like that. Every culture has a story or a myth that undergirds them uh, that says this. Things were good but then our king or a leader, a man, a woman, whatever, somebody went away, and it's bad. But when that person comes back, things will be wonderful again. Now, 
Uh, okay, let me give you some examples. Uh, King Arthur, you know the King Arthur story in England? Um, I'll give you modern ones. Lord of the Rings, anybody knows Lord of the Rings? The last book of that is called Return of the King. The idea is things are horrible, but one day this hidden king that is away up in the north of Middle Earth, he'll come down and make things better. Um, the Matrix, The Lion King, anybody have kids? The Lego movie. Was a Lego movie? Lego movie, it's, it's kind of juvenile, but you know how it is. You know, Lego used to play together. You know, the girl Lego and the Western and the space Lego would all play together. But then a bad ruler came. But one day the special one will return, and when he does, all the Lego will play together. Now, why is it? Now, it sounds juvenile, but why is it that every culture on the planet has a myth like that when the record of human kings is dismal? Why is no king ever does that? Why is it that we got so, well, not we, the America, our American friends, got so excited when Obama became prime min, our president? Remember the, the hoop? The hoop line is like, wow. They called him, and I'm not being facetious, they literally called him the great black hope. He's going to save America. Now, he was, at, he was one of the lowest rated presidents near the end of his term ever. Worse than Nixon, I might add. That's interesting. Why is it that in Canada today, there's people saying, Trudeau is that for us? And I'm not saying that these guys are not saviors because they're liberals or Democrats. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is they're not heroes because they're not Christ. And every single culture has this, and this is why. When uh, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, for God has set eternity in the hearts of men. You know that, story, that line? What does that mean? Here's what it means. That at the garden, you and I lost the reality of eternity, but not the desire for it. Okay? We lost eternity but we still have it echoing, that faint echo in us that says, surely there's a king. Surely if I just had the right friend in my life, the right job, the right education, the right whatever, things will be better. And that is our slight perversion of this echo in us, say, this echoing of eternity, saying there's a king. It's like, and I likened it earlier, to like a bass line. If there's any musicians here, um, the bass is uh, an instrument that is often felt but not heard. Okay, you know, you know when, um, I said it in Toronto anyway, when us Portuguese guys go by in our Camaros with the windows down, it's boom, 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 boom. It's Honda Civics now, I guess. Um, and there's cologne coming out the windows. Uh, but you know that feeling. You see, the bass is not, <laughs> the bass doesn't have a sound per se as it has a resonance. This feeling, that boom, boom. Well, these stories tell us that we all have this baseline running through our lives, and not just us in this room, not just Canadians. Every human being has that same baseline saying, surely there's a king that's coming for me one day. We just don't know what that is. Some cultures will make it wealth. Some cultures will make it family. In more traditional families or cultures, it's all about family. If you dishonor the family, you're outcast. But if you honor them, you're great. So that's their idol. Here, it's individualism. If I accomplish much, I'll be a hero. I'll have everything. And then, of course, we find, and one, I read one theologian said, oh, no, not theologian, a philosopher said, um, I spent my life climbing to the top of the mountains looking for the meaning of life, and when I got there, I found theologians that beat me there. Because they realize it's not there. This baseline running through, and this is where I'll close. Christ is the only answer to that base note the only answer to it. And if you hear about Samson and you're tempted to think of him as a hero, remember that everything points to Christ. Remember the, uh, I'm, I want to ramble. Remember the road to Emmaus when the disciples are distraught and they're confused? What is it that Christ says is the source of their confusion? He says, he basically, well, not basically, he it says in Luke, it's Luke 24, 
Um, and then Christ told them all about the scriptures from Moses to the prophets and how they spoke about him. If you take any scripture of Old Testament and see it in any way that points to anything but Christ, you're in danger of making something else. You're going to think you have to be like Samson and you'll be crushed because you'll never be that brave. Or you'll think you'll have to be like anyone else. Or you'll look at Samson and say, he's so horrible, I'm better than that. And then you'll still think you're saving yourself. The gospel alone is the answer. Christ alone is the answer to that base note running through our lives. And that's where I'll close and I'll pray. Father, thank you, Lord. <clears throat> thank you for, um, even for Samson. Lord, thank you that you fill the Bible with people like us um, that are obedient and yet not obedient, <laughs> that are strong and weak, that are flawed and oftentimes noble. Um, God, we look at those people and we have a degree of hope because we know we're not those people and we are also flawed. But then thank you even more, God, that you put the gospel, that you came to this earth for our sake, that um, we know we don't have to earn it, though it doesn't matter how great a parent I am. Uh, that's not how I earn my salvation. Um, God, thank you that when we see you, though, we will want to be a great parent. But Lord, thank you so much that I don't have to earn it. Because if this whole thing, God, if salvation is based on my ability, our ability to be good, uh, we, we need a better Savior then. But thankfully, Lord, we don't because you came. You paid it all for us. We don't need a better Savior. We have a Savior, and his name is Jesus Christ, him alone. Thank you, Father. Make that clearer to us as we uh, go through this week. Amen. I invite you all to stand as we continue to worship.